Hello. Hello. Meow. So, how's your vortex? Which vortex is that? My vortex grenade? Is it the video game? That's one of the video games, yeah. Uh, you just had a big mission recently, didn't you? You had, you had mm. the wrong longsword or something, but then you, you're arguing mm. about whether you needed a different bow or something? You need to study up. Do I? <laughs> Do you I? need to study up to make better jokes. You need no, to have some some kernel, some some basis of knowledge from which to, to joke. There's a pop-up where you go and you can buy a new dress or an enchantment charm. Mm. So you, you you have all these D and D references that you want to bring into this game, but it's no, not these aren't. These, this is straight out of Destiny. There's there's a there's a beholder that your team uh, has mm. to defeat. Mm. Uh, but first, you got to get through some bugbears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bug straight <laughs> straight <laughs> out of Destiny. It's the new uh, rap album that you'll be dropping. So. <laughs> straight out. We'll um we'll put that on my homework list. Yeah, get into Destiny. Um. Oh, no, I just asked because uh, I, I saw a little bit of chatter on Slack. I know in Chicago, as we record this, it's crazy cold. You're getting some crazy cold too, right? No, it's just regular cold here. Okay, good, no. good, good, good. Is your house going to make it? Yeah, I'll be fine. Good, good, good. Um, we got a lot of stuff here. We got a lot of stuff here. Yeah, yeah. Um, trying to follow up. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I did a lot of typing. I don't know if you noticed. I, I saw that. I think I wrote my personal essay for college. Now we get an outline. You know, you always start with the outline. <laughs> emotional labor is defined as mm-hmm. the dictionary defines. Yeah, Webster's labor, yeah. defines. Yeah, no, right. uh, where do we're, we'll save? I, you know, I like Deluxe's question. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to have time for that. I do want to do one of the. I do want to do the top mini topic though, because I think mini, that's mini, mini. interesting oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and appropriately mm-hmm. mini. Yeah, um, can I jump in? You can. I think this is mine. Yes. I think this mm-hmm. is mine. Yeah. So um, a few weeks ago, um, Netflix dropped a one-off uh, episode of Black Mirror called Bandersnatch that uh, caught a lot of people's attention because with the proper device, it took the form of something like a choose-your-own-adventure book, which is also referenced in the story. No spoilers, but long story short, Bandersnatch comes out and... Um, you bring up Netflix on your Apple TV, it says, nuh-uh-uh, with a very funny little video and says, basically, you can watch it on these devices. I watched it on my TV's app and it worked fine, but um, I don't know, this this first came up when I was talking to Dan and we were just talking about this. I feel like there's so many interesting questions that this brings up, apart from whether people like Black Mirror or a lot of people don't, I do, but they went to some trouble. I mean, you're the developer here, but it seems to me that they went to some effort to create this whole extra layer that enabled you to um, choose what scene you, you know, to choose, to choose a, make a decision that then jumps you to a scene. I thought it was accomplished very smoothly. Um, and I don't know. I'm just curious what you think. I mean, uh, the directions we can go with this thinking about like interactive TV in general, the post cube universe, but also like, do you think that Netflix will use this for other things uh, do you use, oh, I should ask, did you watch Bandersnatch? I did. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know if we talked about, have we talked about that? Nope. Okay, good. Uh, I was just curious what you thought about it as a, um, I mean, do, do you think this is a, was this a bit, a one-time thing? It seems like that's some infrastructure to build up to do just one, however long <laughs> TV episode. And I don't know, it just got me thinking, it got me thinking about will Netflix 
having built this, to use this for other things, are there ways, are there kinds of stories that you feel like could benefit from something like this? I just want to get your thoughts on it. Because especially, you know, even if you just want to talk about the tech of it, how do you think they did with the tech of it? And go anywhere you want with it. What do you, what do you think about the tech behind Bandersnatch? Could it be used for cool things? What's your thought? What is a post-cube universe? Post-cube, C-U-B-E? There was a magazine when I was a youth called Dynamite Magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I loved it. It was just, it was a pop culture, you know, I think it was probably aimed at what we now call tweens. Was it a magazine or was it a zine? <laughs> no, it was a real, you can go Google it, Dynamite Magazine. Right. It had like you know, Jimmy J.J. Walker, Leif Erickson. It was, it was a, a tweenish, maybe early middle school kind of magazine. I remember a very memorable cover from 1977. Oh, yep. I, I look at it and I, yep. I, you instantly recognize it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, my mom, I don't know why, my mom got me a subscription to it and I loved it. But I remember <laughs> there was one that was about um, all this crazy stuff that's happening with TV. You think you know TV? Well, let me tell you, there's more than five channels out there. Some people have this thing called cable TV. And the cable comes into your house and brings you like 18 channels and there's now this thing called Home Box Office where you pay extra for the TV. And I do remember them talking about Q. Q you can look up Q-U-B-E. It was the kind of grandfather of interactive TV where there was this whole system built up to be able to have interactive TV stuff. And it was speculated at the time that like, wow, this can finally make TV something that's useful and educational for kids. And, you know, like, I guess in some sense, like VR, it feels like the whole idea of interactive TV gets batted around every few years and doesn't ever seem to go anywhere in particular. And, you know, and let's be honest, I mean, in particular stuff like Choose Your Own Adventures, like what is the history of that? you got the Choose Your Own Adventure series. You've got stuff like, um, uh, like Dragon's Lair, maybe to some extent. It's really just more like pick the right adventure or die. But you've got uh, stuff like those <laughs> VHS games. Remember those? Where like there were quizzes. On, on This worked better on Laserdisc, but you could do it on VHS too. Where like, did you get the right answer? You know, fast forward to this part. But yeah, I mean, in the 70s, people were very excited about interactive TV. And I don't think it ever took off beyond kind of a regional Ohio thing. They had interactive movies, too. Remember the movie theaters with, like, a joystick that was stuck on the armrest of the seat and everyone would collectively push it in one direction or the other to try to decide what the uh, hero was going to do? Well, was that, like, an 80s thing? Yeah, it was the blinking you missed it, but it was maybe early 90s. Another one of those efforts to add interactivity to movies or television or whatever. So the tech, on, on Bandersnatch specifically, the, the tech behind it, I don't think is that interesting because it's mostly just, you know playing a bunch of video files and then accepting user input so it knows mm-hmm. how to how to continue the video and adding a you know at this point with all the streaming services and everything to some extent wouldn't it probably have to remember previous decisions that you've made so it doesn't show something stupid but it's very very simple tech I mean they're the, the most complicated thing is making sure that it's seamless so you, that you get seamless yeah. playback and all I, the platforms I was really surprised I was surprised that that was as smooth as if you choose fast enough yeah but there's there's plenty of uh, you know the, it, it, uh Plenty of precedent for doing that type of thing. I mean, the, anytime you watch streaming video, it is essentially, in many cases, depending on how the streaming works, a series of uh, individual chunks of video that it's seamlessly connecting together, and you don't know that that's happening. So it's it's. I don't think the tech is that interesting. Um, in the same way, that the tech wasn't really that interesting for the interactive movies or the television or other 
the yeah and the the non tech of fast forward to timestamp whatever for VHS thing yeah um and the honor system of knowing whether you got it right or whatever in the same way it choose your own adventure the tech is not interesting and the, the idea of telling you what page number to turn to the one thing that I that I saw in Banner Snatch which is obviously a necessity of the medium but it was interesting that in this modern age when it presented you with the choice it had the little what, like double ended progress bar. Mm-hmm. Where it's like a the line countdown. that gets shorter and shorter, yeah. Which is straight out of uh, a lot of games that do the same thing that make you uh, that give you a bunch of choices. And essentially, that's why I think Banner Statue isn't that interesting, is because this is well trod territory for actual games. There are many games that are like this. Not that they're movies or television shows or even live action or, or like actors in front of video, but the gameplay consists mostly of controlling a character through a world where there's no threats or anything for you to do. And that you're presented with a series of interactions, usually with other people, where you have a limited menu of choices. And very often, they also have a timer on those limited menu of choices. Like someone says hi, or someone talks to you, or whatever, and you could be mean to them or be nice to them, and you're given a choice of answers. And very like, often, like a te- really like a text adventure, right? Like you get four, like where you get four choices for how you're going to respond to this person. Yeah, and and but it's like a it's a, it's a cinematic type game where it's like you see it's kind of shot like a movie, even though the the actors and everything are all just computer things. And there's a story and. Uh, very often they'll present you with three choices, none of which you want because you're like, I wanted to be nice with this person. And the three choices are all different ways to, to lie to them or be mean, you know, or, or like, like, like Banner Snatch did that too. Like at various points, it was like, you, you know, you would want to do something to help the protagonist and your choices were like, set the computer on fire or spill tea on the computer. It's like, well, I don't want to do any of those things. And you see the little <laughs> progress bar shrinking. Uh, but, but all this, if you've played any of those type of games, Banner Snatch was like, a really stripped down, not very good version of the gameplay that you've experienced in, in games. And I think games is the best medium for mm-hmm. this. Not, yeah. not yeah. like taking movies and trying to turn it into kind of a weird game. Um, not just because like, you know, you have to, filming all these different things is more costly and more difficult than actually having them in a game, depending on how high fidelity the game is. But when you're doing something like this, the problem with Banner Snatch is they wanted it to be a viewing experience with a twist. When I, almost everybody I knew who saw it or played it, who was also a gamer, tried to play it like a game. And it was as a game, it's like if this was released as a game, erase the video and just have it be a bunch of like computer people. You'd be like, this game wasn't very good. Hmm. <laughs> it's like, it, like mm-hmm. if you if you've never in terms of anything, like strictly speaking, in terms of like gameplay. How many how many choices do you have? How how consequential are those choices? How do you feel about the story being told in the characters? And part of it is also the, the Black Mirror thing because Black Mirror has as a show has a vibe and a theme and a bunch of you know like it is it is its own thing, and you have to kind of make the game fit into that. But if you are if this came out as a game. First of all, it would be panned as being too short and not worth whatever amount of money they charge it's for worth, you. And, it's not worth $60, not a AAA game. Yeah, no, it wouldn't be. People would complain if this was $15. And then they'd say, like, the different endings aren't that, you know, aren't really that different. And it's not like it would it would get slammed as a game. It's getting by on its novelty. which So it's a, right? you think it's a gimmick? I think it's getting by on its novelty because it's like, because it's framed as a television show in the same way, uh, or a movie or whatever, in the same way that, uh, like the, the movie interactive movie things with joysticks, like it gets, it gets on the news because it's because of its novelty, but it doesn't have any staying power. And in this case, I don't think something like Banner Satch has any staying power, mostly because everything that it does is, is and has been done better over on the gaming side. Mm -hmm. And so if you want that, there's a place for that. There's, you have many, many choices made for that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and you and you have more choices. You have more choices of of genre, and they're they're richer, and they're they've had time to practice this. Because what makes a good, you know, satisfying like series of choices, right, is different than what makes a good. You don't have any choice, but you're just watching something, television show, or a movie. Like I think that's a lot of the complaints I heard about Bandersnatch is, despite the fact that there were some different paths you could take, they weren't really that different, and none of them were really satisfying and cathartic in the way that a game would probably be like there wasn't even a good ending or a bad ending there was just a series of black mirrorish endings and despite all the choices like half the choices were just to let you get you used to the idea that you have choices which is i guess they have to do that because they're not expecting everyone who's done this who's played a game mm-hmm. but i don't know i'm i didn't find it that impressive i don't i didn't like the story i i thought the choices could have been better the thing they have going for banner snatches, they can do the meta thing where it's oh, like, yeah. we know, yeah. I, I we know you're in a game. It, like that we, becomes part of the story. Yeah. Right. And even that, I think they didn't take that far enough. Like, I, I don't know why they were feeling timid because Black Mary usually goes too far. That's their whole thing. So <laughs> I mostly give it a thumbs down. I don't think you know, we're going to be seeing much more like that. If, if, if the people who made Banner Snatch have a notion to do things like this, interactive storytelling is absolutely a medium and you can play in it, but you don't start with a movie and add interactivity. You make a game from the beginning and that's, Mm. you know, game design is its own field of study and it's not like you can take a movie and then add some twist to it. And and if you were to make a game, I don't think you would even choose to do it in live action because it's just not the best medium. You know, it's not like you wouldn't, it's full motion video is not the best medium for, because he, like all the rest of the time, there's no interaction whatsoever, right? Whereas if you're making it as a game, you'd want the person to feel invested in the character and the story by mm-hmm. making them essentially inhabit and control the character in between all those times when you're faced with these limited choices. So the freedom of movement and deciding who to your interactive and when and how to navigate the environment, what to look at and when to dwell on it, that invests you in the story more than... I'm watching, I'm watching, watching. Oh, I have to make a choice again. I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm watching. Oh, I have to make a choice again. Like, it's, that's not good game design. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll give my two cents. Like, I, I thought it was, I thought it was an interesting idea. Uh, I, uh, yeah, it's funny. My wife was out of town. My family was out of town. So I was there by myself. I did find myself becoming, and again, I'm not a game person, as you know, but uh, I did find myself becoming very anxious about my choices. Um, so I was caught up enough in the, if not the story, the experience of the story, um, to get sort of, um, I don't know, I was getting not emotional, but like, I was like, ah, I just, I want to help this kid. Like, don't do any of these things. But it was also like, um, um, I mean, now don't tar me with the brush, but like I, I, I watched, I interacted with the experience for, I think over an hour. And, um, do you remember the, uh, back, back in the, my goodness, remember back in the day, the internet intelligence test where the internet intelligence test was this test. You had to figure out when to bail out. Yeah. Yeah. The the measure of your intelligence was like, when did you realize that this thing will go on as long as you keep taking it? There's a part of me that was like, Hmm, I wonder if I, I don't even know if I got to the end, but I did it for like over an hour. I'd seen several different, what felt like conclusions, but at a certain point I started to feel like not, Hmm. Not like a sucker, but a little bit like, is this part of the experience is I'm supposed to just keep doing this until I give up? You know what I mean? Yeah. And that I think if that had been part of the experience, that would have been better than what was really true, which is you were just getting bored with the game. Hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what was happening. Like that you had felt like you had gotten everything out of it that you're going to get. And there was no reason for you to keep going. And I mean, and you can either say, OK, that means there wasn't much content for you to enjoy 
or there's more content, but now it just seems repetitive and you're not, yeah. you don't want to play anymore. Okay. So, so two very short, uh, follow-ups. So my question may now be moot when I asked you, are there stories that could be told well with this Netflix technology? Your answer to that would probably be yes, but do it with an actual video game. Yeah, it's not, yeah, not, not with this Netflix technology. There are plenty of stories that lend themselves uh, well to games, but I think for this particular thing where like there's no interactivity except for punctuated by a few points leading to a couple of different endings, it's just not a satisfying meme. I think you could do a better thing than was done here, but I think inevitably, if you did a good job on this and people got an appetite for it, both the people making them and the people watching them slash playing them mm-hmm. would find themselves taking a turn towards games. They, okay, it's like, what else can you do? And better and <laughs> more. And right. you'd, you'd end up making a game. Like, so why why constrain yourself? Yeah, it's like when I, when I listen to some some recent punk rock band for two minutes and it just makes me want to go listen to Husker Du, where like you get that experience of like, oh, this just reminds me of something that did this better a long time ago or in a different way. Yeah, you'd end up reinventing games from first principles. Say you'd never seen a video game like this and you just you just started from television or movies and you started adding interactivity. You would back solve your way right into games, even if you had no knowledge mm-hmm. of what games have done in the past. Because right. that's that's how where that leads. And and speaking of that, if you if you are interested in, in Bandersnatch, you might want to take a look at Life is Strange. You can play it with your daughter. Um it's a very similar type of thing where you can imagine like you could probably go to YouTube and watch Life is Strange and just watch it as a movie and see that it's punctuated by points where you have to make choices sometimes with time limits. Oh, wow. Um, right. But it is actually entirely interactive. You control the character the whole time, but it's the type of game where there's no real threat or like gameplay to speak of other than exploration, choosing who to interact with. And the entire game consists of sort of mood and place and these interactions, which are essentially all multiple choice. And your choices dictate, you know, it, it's, I think it's even more linear than Bandersnatch, but it feels less so because there are way more choices and they're not as uh, transparently manipulative as yeah, the, yeah. the Bandersnatch ones. Uh, and it's and, and the main thing is going for it. Like, I think uh, Life is Strange has a better story than Bandersnatch. It just does. Like, take all the interactivity out of it and just write it as a story. Life mm-hmm. is Strange has a better story. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it would if you filmed Life is Strange as a TV miniseries and took out all interactivity, it would be better than Bandersnatch. Like... And then, of course, I think the inter- interactivity is better. I think Life is Strange is like $15, available on PlayStation 4. You might mm-hmm. want to check it out. It's a, definitely a chill game. Like, there is no... You can be relaxed. You, you'll never be asked to shoot a monster in the face. You'll never be asked to quickly jump over something. You, it's just like... <laughs> the, you may feel that same anxiety, but it'll be anxiety <laughs> over keep like... Keep your daughter away from the yeah, walkers. <laughs> it, it'll, no, it'll be anxiety about like, should I be mean to this person or nice? And there's a timer. Like, exactly the same anxiety you felt at Bandersnatch. But the whole rest of the time... You know, uh, I would I suggest you check that out. And then finally, prediction hat. Uh, do you think they'll do more things like this? I mean, what I will call an engine, whatever they built to do this in their software or their system, whatever. Do you think they'll uh, do more stuff like this? Because it must be. I mean, okay. So let, let me let me let me stipulate. I think I, my guess is that this required, in a different way, from virtually any other kind of thing you see on Netflix, this must have required um, an unusual amount of interaction between the producers of the Black Mirror show and the people at Netflix who would implement it. I don't know who came to whom, but you know what I mean? Like, it seems like there must have been a lot of work on Netflix's end to do this. I doubt Charlie Booker put this together on his PC. Yeah, there would have to be some cooperation, but honestly, the the tech work is not complicated. It's a fairly simple state machine and, you know... It, 
modifying the million different apps that play Netflix to support this is probably the more complicated part, but depending on how their apps are implemented everywhere, like the, the tech to do this might not have been all that difficult. So I, I, I think they probably will try to do another one. If this was popular, I don't know what their numbers were like, like who, who did this or whatever, who, how many people watched it or played it and how long did they watch or play? I can imagine a few other people taking runs at it. Like they could get all the way to the point where they try to essentially make a game with live action with those type of snippets. But I think that they will very quickly be in the uncanny valley to the point where casual people don't want to get in that invested and gamers just want to play a game. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Burrow. You can learn more about Burrow right now by visiting B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash diffs, D-I-F-F-S. Your home is important. You know this. You want to come home to somewhere that feels comfortable and maybe even looks a little stylish, and you want something that's designed to fit you. Well, Burrow believes that high-quality furniture should be more accessible, and that's why you can easily customize your own sofa online. You order it right on the internet and then have it shipped fast and free within that same week, people, same week. The Burrow Sofa adapts to your life. It's scratch and stain resistant, so you don't have to worry about spills. It has a built-in USB charger. What? So you can charge your devices right out of your couch. What century am I in? Fabric is totally free of harmful chemicals, and the frame is made from sustainably sourced hardwood. It's a sofa that grows with you. You can make your burrows bigger at any time by adding new pieces. You can easily set up and disassemble your couch with no tools required. Burrow sofas are designed for comfort. You can customize every detail. You can pick comfy low armrests or stylish high ones. And the proprietary foam is supportive yet super cozy. And don't forget to check out their line of stylish pillows and throws made from soft hand-woven fabric ready to complement your new sofa. Burrow was recently named one of Time Magazine's best inventions, and so you know you're going to be amazed. And right now you can save $75 off your sofa by going to burrow.com slash diffs. I want to repeat that's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. That'll get you $75 off your order. And I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? I literally, literally this morning as I record this, ordered a burrow sofa from the website and it will be delivered to me. This is a huge deal. My family has been looking to buy a new couch for years we finally pulled the trigger. So it will have arrived by the time of the next episode, and I can report back on the Burrow at burrow.com slash diffs. Our thanks to Burrow for the support of Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. But you know, good for them for trying. Oh yeah, it's definitely right up Black Mirror's alley of like a tech-related weird thing, right? The, yeah. Tech-related weird and aggressive in that Black Mirror kind of in your face way is perfectly fitting for the for the franchise and i think it was a good idea for them to to do this you know because I, it, I, I have a late uh it's late to offer an opening statement but i i think uh you know how we talk about uh we every nine episodes we mention how british things are funny because we don't know everything about england so like when we watch monty python part of it is we don't know what a stoat is or we don't know what you know what i mean like we don't get the mm-hmm. reference sometimes and that makes it extra weird and fun the thing with charlie booker and his sensibility he, uh, I'm, I'm out of my depth on this, but I'm going to make a shot here. I, I think he has a sense of humor and a view of the world. And to be honest, a public persona that is very English. I mean, I've known people and well, from afar, I've seen strangers who are uh, kind of cut from a similar cloth. This very like English comedy 
and nerd culture that's different than the American culture. And I could think about my, you know, my old pal, Danny O'Brien. He was so English and so, he was very self-deprecating, very low key in that, in that classic, you know, British way of something that we don't realize is an insult, you know, that, that kind of thing. I think Charlie Booker's like that. I think people read his stuff in, uh, I want to say The Guardian, where he sounds like, or if you watch his, his show, if you watch his, which is, what's his other show that I like? Um, oh, crap. I can't remember. But his other show where he talks about the weekend news, you know, he, he has a persona, which is he's this persona that like hates technology and he's very cynical. And, I, you know, I think he's certainly as a person very skeptical about technology. And I, I think there are elements of that. But I also look at one of my favorite comics, Stuart Lee. We're like, you know, if you don't buy into Stuart Lee as a certain kind of character, you're not going to enjoy his comedy at all. And it doesn't, it doesn't make it easier uh, if you don't acknowledge that he is a, he's a different kind of character. He's not a baggy pants American comic. The, you know, real, there's, there's a certain kind of real brainy, deliberately obtuse, um, somewhat, you know, more confrontational, but not confrontational in a Dennis Leary way. I think that's a kind of, of English character. I, I, you can, guys can feel free to correct me, but, but I think that's part of it is that like he, there are layers to the presentation that he's offering that I think are a little more subtle sometimes than people get. And that's probably not helped with things like the prime minister having to copulate with a pig or whatever. Like that, those, I think, I think it was unfortunate to make that one of the early episodes because it really put people off their beer and set a weird precedent. I think that was episode number one. I think it was episode number one. Yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to, I just want to stay, stay, stay for the record. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Charlie Booker and I, uh, I don't know. Did you ever watch his history of video games? Mm, I think I pointed you maybe. to that. Maybe I, I, he's I, a huge, he's a huge fan of, uh, video games and of like computer stuff. So like there's this, I forget what it's called, but in England in the eighties, there was this computer system that was widely available that you probably know the name of and I don't, that everybody did stuff on and had the ability to program and stuff like that. He was really into that. He's very into old video games. So, I mean, he is a, he's an ardent enthusiast about that kind of technology. So even though he comes across as saying, well, this is what happens if this stuff, you know, goes totally pear-shaped, as we say in England, like still, like there's something very interesting, you know, going on with this technology. Yeah, I mostly find him insufferable. <laughs> like, See, and I, I, think that, I, I get that. I, and I get that I, with Stuart Lee. That is, Stuart that Lee, is, the last season of his show... I thought was genius and other people thought it was unwatchable because he was being deliberately part of it was he's just, he's a very, he seems like he's a very hard person to get along with professionally, <laughs> but he also, he just, he, where the guys eating the Indian food and it's just him eating on stage for like eight minutes. Like that's funny to you or it's not. And I totally get why it's not. If it's not funny to you, I, I don't, it's like the Smiths. It's okay if you don't like them. I, I absolutely understand why that would not appeal to people. I think he is insufferable in a particular British, particular British way, which which is why, <laughs> like, I think that is a that is a certain kind of British character that you wouldn't be able to get away with here. You know what I mean? Like, like do you, do, you, do you watch? Um, you've watched some Top Chef, right? I know uh, the the little short angry guy. Uh, what's uh, Toby. Name? No, no. I, I, oh, I, Tom, Tom Top, Top Chef's not the one with uh, Tom Clicio. No, no. Uh, What's his name? Gordon Ramsay. Oh, Gordon Ramsay. I know well, Gordon Ramsay. He's not on Top Chef. Is he my favorite different show? There's a guest judge they have on sometimes who's more famous for other things, but his name's Toby something. And he's exactly like that. He's just this uh, totally insufferable, like, you know, kind of <laughs> a noise. He's that kind of English character. Like, I think it is, I think it is kind of a type that we don't, you know, always get. 
Here's what it is. I think the the anti-intellectualism in the U.S. is of such a virulent strain that it it erases anyone who seems to have pretensions of being of their state, whether it's being angry or happy or sad or upset or whatever, is rooted in some deeper understanding of the world. Because it all comes back to, you think you're better than me, right? (laughs) We can't tolerate that. But in in Mm -hmm. England, there is a place in the world for presumably, like, angry people who are angry because they they see the world as it is and they're smart and they have opinions and they, you know, look down their nose because, like, like they're they're more tolerant of class and snootiness and intellectualism and allowing that there to be a place for that. Not that it's dominant, but there is actually mm-hmm. a place for it. Whereas America, there is no place for it. It must be expunged. Like it's been chased into the the, the far distant corners. That I feel like there used to be a place for that. Like maybe even like in the 50s with the, the beats and everything, that, like that there was a place for like a, a, a narrow place, but there was some place where it can exist, but not anymore. And I think uh, in, in the UK, there's still... Still definitely a place for that. And of course, of course, in places like, yeah. you know, in the rest of Europe, there's definitely a place for that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know if we're talking about the same thing. I, I see it somewhat differently where I feel like um, America, whether because we're so into ourselves and so utterly ignorant of how anybody else does anything, like it's, it's, it's seen as being disloyal to even attempt to understand how things happen in other places. But, you know, we, uh, we swing a lot of lumber here and we like to be big. And we like to be loud and we like to disrupt people at the next table with our comments and that kind of stuff. And I think what I will say about what I perceive as British culture is I think, and, and this is a part of what's so baffling to people, it sounds like every, everybody sounds like a James Bond villain or like some kind of fancy lad. And But I think there's an imperative in most of British culture to present in a certain way, that there is a, a, a way to behave civilly in public that has very strict rules to it. There are things that we say and things that we don't say. And that seems, I think that seems ridiculous to us. Now I happen to enjoy watching that as a spectator. I found a podcast this morning that is so delightful. David Tennant. I just, just listened to that today. How much do you love Olivia Coleman? I just saw the favorite too. I, I listened oh, to really? half, half the episode and then she started mentioning the favorite. And I was like, wait a second, that's her. That's Queen Anne. Did we just watch that this weekend? She's so great. She was great in Broadchurch. She's fantastic in <laughs> Peep Show. And I have to say, getting back to the you know the the terrible like uh, lizard brain level of enjoyment of British people uh, by <laughs> Americans, their accents, their actual accents. Yeah. I was just they it was just that that was the re- main reason I listened to the whole thing. And they that's not so, his actual accent. So delightful. Oh yeah, yeah. But that's his that's his like I'm talking to an English person accent. But uh, the thing that boggles my mind so is that he's Scottish. That, he's that so he's different. The thing that bothers my mind is he sounds so different than he had on uh, Doctor Who. And Absolutely. When I saw him on Doctor Who, I'm like, well, this is obviously how he talks because this is he's a British actor and there and he's playing a he British was Doctor deliberately, Who. Deliberately, I'm trying to remember. It's not Welsh, but he was no, it's definitely not Welsh. But he was he was, um, I believe, was deliberately affecting a certain regional, maybe a London accent. Right. right. I mean, and the British people are fooling us when they do uh, American accents. So, they're of course, so they're going to fool us when they do a slightly different United Kingdom related <laughs> accent. Uh, the, the, this is going to become a whole show about British people. Yeah. The, the best part, <laughs> yeah. my, my favorite thing about his speech is that he does the thing that I first learned about from you, too, which I think were the first people from that part of the world that I had occasion to hear talk a lot, uh, is that he says the letter of the alphabet M uh, when he wants to pause and say, um. 
which is a thing that, that everyone in U2 does. They say the letter M. My right? Irish yeah. landlord does Instead that too. Um. Instead of saying um, he said M. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they just well, say M. But okay, so that, that podcast, which I, what I'm 34 minutes into, I just, I mean, well, first of all, wow, it was so great to learn. Well, not great, but sad. I mean, it was amazing to hear her candor about what life has become like for her. That, that, <laughs> the fact that as someone who I vaguely recognize from Hot Fuzz, and yet in their little bubble of the world, she's so famous that she can't go out anywhere. She could come, she could come to America, and no one would recognize her. I guarantee it. Come to America, you'll be able to live like a normal person. Well, when the buzz started, I'll tell you straight up, and she was great in uh, The Night Manager. But when when they announced that uh, there was the buzz about a potentially uh, female doctor, far and away. Absolutely, my number one choice was Olivia Coleman. Mm. I thought I think she would have been so great. But then, I mean, I'm 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 making this connection myself. But like, yeah, she would love that. <laughs> she already feels like she can't go to the park with her kids without people grabbing their cell phones and taking pictures. I felt so bad for her, but I, I just I, I I'm glad you listened to that. I I am looking forward to this show. I thought he did a real good job uh, uh, with it. He has a rapport. Uh, but I delight in, I mean, you know what I love? I love this. I love Desert Island Discs. I don't know if you're listening to that. That's a wonderful show where this English lady interviews mostly English people about the, you know, five albums they would take to a desert island. And I just think there's something delightful about listening to the performed civility of British people talking to each other. <laughs> that, that also knowing that there's all kinds of little things like the naughtiness about how <laughs> Judy Dench is naughty. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, you get to hear all the little Britishism phrases. I, I just tried. Yeah, well, I know to... from Brady that naughty doesn't mean what, what it means here. Yeah, they had the whole discussion of pants, and I like, pants? I, I, yeah. I, like they were like two sentences <laughs> into that, and I'm like, oh, I figured it out. Like, oh, wait a second, I gotta yeah. translate that. That's well, not it like what... teenagers taking pictures of themselves in their pants. In their pants, I'm like, what does he mean holding your phone down your pants? Take a picture of your junk? I'm like, oh no, that's not what they mean. I learned that from uh, Matt Alexander. I know but, we all know the, that intellectually, the but when trousers, I, but when I right? yeah. But, but when I hear it, when, like, I know that I know that definition of pants. I've heard it many times from our friends in the UK. But when you hear someone say it, it takes a while for that knowledge to kick in and for you to reinterpret what you've just heard, because otherwise it just goes smoothly down. Right. I, yeah. I get more exciting about the uh, I don't know what the, the, the phrases where they drop off a word that we would add or say, like, oh, like you're in hospital or at university no, or, or, or would you have done or whatever? I can't say oh, it right, yeah. but like. They have a whole set of phrases that that like just abruptly end when you expect there to be. There's one. There's one that comes up all the word. time on no such thing as a fish that I love, which is they say you might do. Yep, might do have done. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Hold on, yeah. I, I thought she was great on the show. I thought he was a little. He needs to work on his his, uh, host, his hosting chops. I know, but she was she was perfect. She yeah. she she should be the host. <laughs> yeah, she was. Uh, she's delightful. Yeah, have you ever seen Peep Show? It's probably not your cup of tea. Do you, do you no, like she, kept, she kept talking about that. I, I didn't know. It was, it was Are like you familiar with Mitchell and Webb? Yeah, vaguely from YouTube. So they, they had they had that Mitchell and Webb look. Or that Mitchell that Mitchell and Webb sound, I think, was their BBC radio show, and they did that Mitchell and Webb look, which was their like um, sketch comedy show. And Peep Show is a pretty unconventional, but not unconventional. But the the, the main bit with the with Peep Show is that each character looks directly at the camera when they're speaking every single line, and it ends up being it ends up being pretty funny because those Mitchell and Webb are they're great. Um, but anyway, okay. So enough about British people. Uh, so banner snatch. Yeah. So you give a thumbs down on banner snatch. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. and, uh, on, on, uh, Olivia Coleman. Did you know that she's going to be the queen in the new season of the crown? In the new, she's going to be Elizabeth. Mm hmm. 
uh, what she said that's in my contract now. I have to always be the queen. <laughs> yeah, she just got. I mean, did you see the favorite? Um, I have not had a chance. It's been killing me. My daughter saw the trailer and she's dying to see it. I said, I'm pretty well, sure you can't not, see it. Not really appropriate for your daughter. <laughs> and the I, phrase we use in our house is it has some sexy stuff in it. <laughs> and some upsetting stuff. Anyway, I, I, I didn't I didn't think it was that great. Her performance in it is, in it, in it is great. And yeah. obviously she'll be, it, it'll be fun because she plays a queen in that too. It'll be interesting yeah. to see the difference between the two queens, but I didn't even recognize her in it. Like Really? Because, mostly because like when I picture her, I picture her from Hot Fuzz, right? And so oh. I, absolutely did not recognize her at all i love hot fuzz tell me you like hot fuzz i do please who doesn't like hot fuzz come on hey casey liss um he he doesn't like hot fuzz he doesn't like scott pilgrim um the evening thing he likes Shaun of the dead i mean just forget it i think he likes like three movies from the 80s that he's seen Mm -hmm. you should bring it up on your program um (laughs) it's come up Hey, at least he's seen three movies. From I the know. 80s. I'm not unlike, make unlike the my joke. other co-host. <laughs> what? Well, well, <laughs> just the stuff that he comes up with that he that he feigns absolute ignorance of is so funny. He's to not me. feigning it. He hasn't seen these movies. Lawnmower, it's hard for people that? to what believe do you do with that he's disconnected from from the culture, but he hasn't seen them. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, did you like the lobster? I have never seen it because I think that's the movie. Kind of like I know this is not the same, but like a. Green Room, where the movie ha- has a reputation of shocking weirdness, and and it's very polarizing. And I've oh, just stayed yeah, away sure. from it. It's not for everybody, but it's uh, it's one of those for me. You know me. Uh, it's one of those like oh, I can't believe this got made kind of movies. Just because it's like it's so weird, it's so ambitiously weird, and so committed to its weirdness. And I love anything that's fully committed to its weirdness. Uh, it's just if you don't. If you can't have a partner, you have a certain amount of time to find a partner. Otherwise, you're turned into an animal and you get to choose the animal. Oh, yeah. That's starting to, it's all coming back to me now. Okay. Closing the bug. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by ExpressVPN. You can learn more about ExpressVPN right now by going to expressvpn.com slash diffs. You know, we've seen a lot in the media lately about online security breaches, so it's only natural to worry about where your data goes, especially when it's something as simple as just sending an email. You can even then just put your private information at risk. Gross. Chances are you're being tracked by social media sites, marketing companies, and possibly even your own internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, they can sell it to people who want to profit from your info. Double gross. Well, you can take back your privacy with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing. It encrypts your data and hides your public IP address. You can turn on ExpressVPN protection with just one click. This is true. It's magic. The easy-to-use app runs seamlessly in the background of your computer, your phone, or tablet, and it costs less than $7 a month. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It even comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Now listen, seriously, if you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep the bad guys away from your data... You need ExpressVPN. I am using ExpressVPN. It runs on my phones, and it was a doddle to set up. It was comically easy to set up, and now I feel protected and and cozy and warm. Thank you, ExpressVPN. So listen, protect your online activity today by going to expressvpn.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. If you don't want your online history in the hands of your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. I'm going to say it again. You go to expressvpn.com slash diffs. And you're going to get three months free with the one-year package. 
I'm going to say it a third time because it's good luck. Rumpelstiltskin. Once again, expressvpn.com slash diffs for three extra months free with a one-year package. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Uh, and we're back. What, uh, go anywhere from here. You take it, buddy. Drive the, Jesus, take the wheel. You got all the stuff in, in big topics. Watch me delete the word big again. Oh, come on. What are you doing? Oh, it's, okay. Thank you. Wait. Oh, no, 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 no. You took it out again. Topics. You don't need, they're not big. They're just topics. They're, they're, big to- they're distinguished from the other topics. So the other topics are many topics. They're many topics. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay, fine. Do this then. You did all this uh, textual labor, so it's time for us to. There you go. You like to that? Jump in. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. You go ahead, change it. I see your little pink cursor. Change my many topics to mini topics. Go ahead, do it. Look at ah, oh, come on. Many topics. <laughs> <laughs> they call manscaping. The many petty topics. Many petty topics. I don't know what got me thinking about this. You know what? I, I reverse engineered this topic uh, from a feeling. Uh, which I think is a good way for a topic to come up. But I wanted more to talk. More than a feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> more than some days, more than a feeling. Um, I begin dreaming. The uh, the topic, uh, which I think I'm going to eventually wish was a better title, was emotional labor. Uh, and emotional, as in my recalling of this, emotional labor, and I put some Wikipedia links in, but I feel like I remember emotional labor as a topic getting some traction in the past, I want to say 10 years. I feel like I learned about it with, Jump in anytime. But the emotional labor is often defined as that. Well, the def- definition number one of this is that there's a certain way you have to conduct yourself. Like when you're at work, you, there's also, there's this related topic called emotion work. But the big story is that, especially in certain kinds of employment, whether that's customer service or whatever, there's a way that you have to um, control and modulate, redirect your emotions for your work, right? So if you're uh, historically a flight attendant, if you're the lady who leans against the car and somebody says, do you come with the car? You say, he, he, oh, you. And like, you, you're not allowed to go. That's totally sexist. Sexist. I have kids, right? You are, you are expected to, I think this is the less interesting definition, but definition number one is that you have to modulate and re re filter your own emotions to reflect the role that you have at work. I think that's a very interesting idea, but I'm way interested in what I would call dictionary definition number two, which is the emotional labor. And this could be at work. This could be at home. It could be anywhere. But I want to talk about the work that people have to do that's not part of their job. I mean, like maybe for a parent, but like the work that you end up having to do how can I put this? Let's let's say let's say what it is. Doesn't it seem like so much of the time, if anything has to get done involving soothing emotions, uh, explaining the ways of boss to man, whatever it is, it's so often a woman that finds herself in this role without any kind of sort of a policy necessarily, but it's women who are expected to bring in the birthday cake. It's women who are expected to pass the card around for a birthday, all of this stuff. And I think the dictionary definitions one and two are very, very related in that there is, especially with women, an expectation that we don't talk about that they are going to do the work of uh, calming nerves, soothing people, 
Um, being the people that keep everything kind of wired together. It's almost certainly true in most homes, and it's true a lot in the office. And um, for my own reasons, I, I wanted to talk about this and get your thoughts on it. And I guess one question for you is, like, where you work, do, do you find this to be true? Do you, And, and uh, as you see from my pivot, at one point I'm going to pivot to this not being just about women, but do you find that there's certain kinds of work, if you're aware of it, are there certain kinds of stuff that need to get done around your office that end up falling to some people and not to other people, especially if it involves relationships. Um, I don't know. I'm going to shift back to family for a second, but I'll bring it back to work. Yeah, I go where, go wherever I, you want. I, I I'm, I've, I've, I've written many paragraphs here, so jump in anywhere. I think I think it's related. So, like the the example that it, that uh, always springs to mind when I hear emotional labor is the sort of traditional gender roles from like the 50s in, in America, where you have a, a husband and wife, and uh, the husband's job is to go out to work and make the money and the wife's job is to make the home and the husband come home, comes home from a long day of work and expects the, to be catered to uh but the family unit the little family with their 2.5 kids or whatever also functions in a larger uh you know orbit of social relations so for example the family is going to uh do something for a holiday like uh they're going to go to one of their parents house or they're going to host the holiday or whatever it is they're going to do or there's going to be a, a birthday party for one of their kids or a birthday party for one of their kids friends or anything like that mm -hmm. uh the expectation is in the gender roles because the man went out and made the money and comes home that uh the wife is going to take care of figuring out where we're going to go for the holidays of picking out the present for Timmy's friend of picking out the present for Timmy if he's your child of setting mm -hmm. up the birthday party of like you said coming in with the cake and getting everybody to sing um and in the roles it's not as if the man has no involvement in this the man wants to be able to shout objections to any offered plan you know it, to to object or to grumble about the things that happen but doesn't want to actually participate in the actual planning of any of the things so he still wants to be in charge of everything like mm -hmm. we're not going to your mother's this year we went last year and that's final and that is the extent of his involvement he expects that command to be obeyed but where we go how we get there talking to the mother who you're not going to show up at dealing with all his relationships figuring out what timmy wants for his birthday you know making sure who to invite and who not to invite decorating the house uh you know, it, 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 soothing the crying child who's at the party, all that stuff is expected to go to the wife. And all of that is both actual labor, right? But also the emotional mm -hmm. labor of managing this family's entire relationship with, with all of the rest of the family. And the man is just like a passenger shouting orders, but doesn't want to have to do any of the actual work of figuring out how to deal with i mean the, not, not even the work of identifying the work to be done because i think that's a big part of it is that there's so much loose work that needs to be done floating around that a lot of people it never occurs to them that they would be the one to do the dishes in the kitchen right it, it, it could be anything like that the guys like roll around as these big balls of emotion and then the women end up doing a lot of the heavy lifting of identify what has to be taken care of. I'm thinking here of the movie <laughs> A Christmas Story, which is a pretty good example of this, where you've got the guy, you know, old-fashioned dad, who's very, very emotional and hypocritical and does a lot of yelling and making, you know, pronouncements. And then the mom is, on the one hand, A, expected to be the yang to that yin. I think that's right. Anyway, she's expected to be the one who, who's the mom character that still makes the meatloaf, beatloaf, I hate meatloaf. But 
on top of that all, she's also supposed to not have her own aspirations and emotions, even as she still also has to be a different kind of director or disciplinarian. It's not like she is uh, relieved of those duties because she's the one who has to ch- chase the bumper stalks out. <laughs> it, isn't, it isn't less work. It's way more work. And, and to the case I'm going to make in five minutes, it's a lot of invisible work. You're the one, you become this uh, kind of knowledge worker in the sense that you have to identify what needs to be done. And often is not do the work that nobody even realized needed to be done. And you're not allowed to complain about it. And you're not allowed to like call out the inequity of it because now you're being shrill. Yeah. And I think especially in, in, uh, interpersonal relationships and families that is very heavily rooted in, in sexism and traditional gender roles, traditional quote unquote, um, bringing it back to work though, the, the analogy I want to draw in work is in, in my work in the, the, the tech world programmer world, as most of us know is massively male dominated. Um, and like I when, often when I'm at work, as you mentioned, like who, who does this stuff in the office or I, I thought of a scenario. I was, it makes me think of a scenario where like, imagine, 1950s uh you know stereotypical uh traditional gender role world but remove all the women would you have a bunch of families that never had birthday parties for their kids that never went anywhere for the holidays that when children were upset they were just allowed to just cry and no one ever soothed them or let them learn how to deal with their emotions that men who came men the men would come home from their jobs and be angry and no one would be there to placate them or give them a hot dinner or work around them or say don't bother daddy now he's had a bad day or whatever regardless of what they're like that if it was just a bunch of men like whole whole aspects of life would be eliminated because without Mm -hmm. someone else to do the both real and emotional labor related to them they just wouldn't get done and i often feel like that in my various programmer uh jobs that i've had over the low these many years that i've been working that in an office full of men very often uh birthdays go uncelebrated uh there are no outings with people and I, I, you know like there's all the things that you would imagine that, that need to be done like or if someone gets angry no one deals with them and it just is ignored until it becomes unbearable and that person is fired or that person chases everybody else away if they're the boss or whatever like the, the literally like if there's no one there to do it no one will do it because the the men don't know how to do it and don't want to do it and refuse to do it or some combination of both the above so who brings in the birthday cake when there is no women around who are just expected to do it? There is no birthday cake. There is no birthday. Nobody mm-hmm. does it, right? Right. Which, which I think, if you asked a man who is feeling defensive about it, it's like, "Oh, that's the way we want it." It's, it's like it's not true. Like everyone wants that to happen, but no one wants to do the work. Like everyone likes, uh, you know, a birthday party and to have some cake and to and to, to be soothed when they're the one who's upset or to have, like. But no one wants to actually do that work. So right, right, right. And, 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 at work, and, I feel like that's that's very often the situation. Now, the thing is, it's not like that entirely because we do have women. And, and in fact, we have dedicated roles of people who are managers or we actually have office managers. Like when you hear, hear the phrase office mom, it's because some group of men has hired a woman to do the emotional labor. Yeah. Given the gender the, down to the, the unofficial, unofficial title to say, well, obviously we need a woman to do this because this is a woman's work. And they get a woman to do it. And often that woman is then saddled with knowing when everybody's birthday is and planning a group outing as a celebration. Or even even if it's a celebration of a, some project that a bunch of people worked on and they're super proud of, it's like, uh, but uh, they'll just shout over, Grace, uh, set up a party for us. We just yeah. got the, you know, the whatever account. And mm-hmm. someone else has to set up that party. And it's, you know, like they they would literally never do it. If there was no grace for them to set it up, they would just not have a party because it just seems like too much work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like there is, there is a, a theme to this that's, 
I, I can't think of a better phrase for it than invisible work, which can mean so many different things. It can also be a form of, of gaslighting in some ways. Like there are some people who have more, I don't mean this to be like a valued word, but people who have more sensitivity than other people, not sensitivity as in touchiness, but as in like, hey, I can read the room. I know what's going on here. Uh, it could be the poor project manager that is the person who has to think the thing through and do the implementation of things. But I mean, it's, uh, I don't go too too far down this path, but like, is it going to be the dudes who say, hey, it's time for us to have uh, a better policy on sexual harassment and uh, paid, you know, uh, maternity leave? Like, because why? Because that's an invisible problem. If if that's something that doesn't affect you and you don't like it isn't like me want Diet Coke now, if there's something that if if it's not a solvable problem that I can look at and say, you know, police that piece of paper, throw that away, somebody has to I want to really be clear about this. I think a big part of emotional labor is in the constant need to scan the horizon for what work is not being done, whatever that work is, right? And like I say, for me, as somebody who's a retired project manager, like for me, a lot of that is, wow, I feel like I'm the only person who, and this might be my own, I fully admit this could be my own flaws and hangups, but like, I feel like sometimes I'm one of the very few people that thinks through on the two, two important things, or as I say on Roderick, thinking of all the things on the one hand, thinking about, okay, let's look at it this way. There's something here that other people either aren't realizing or aren't talking about that needs to be addressed. Okay, starting with identification, right? And then second, there's sort of fleshing that out to say, well, for this thing to succeed, whether it's deploying this enterprise software or having Janice's birthday party, there's going to be steps, there's going to be connective tissue that has to be in place in order to ensure that that gets done. And like, and a lot of the time, you're the one who has to identify, you're the one who has to like, um, you know, basically come up with your own punch list. It's all invisible work. It's not part of what you are necessarily compensated to do, at least not in a way that anybody's talking about it. And yet it's all work that will become a problem eventually, probably one way or another. Another example of this, I think it's a, is a huge part of emotional labor that mostly women do is dealing with the emotional aspects of relationships. I mean, a common one is like, let's say your boss is very ego assertive and a little rough around the edges, you know, you have to go, you're the lady in the office who has to be Milton and explain the way of God's to, God to man. You're the one who has to go talk people off the ledge about how bananas the boss is being, trying to like reframe what they do. Like who else's job is that? Is that anybody's job? Is that a necessary thing? Well, it might be because, you know, Janice is going to quit because of the way that, that she's being treated and nobody's going to notice it until she's already part way out the door. Do you, do you know what I mean? That when I say invisible work, it's, it's, it could be something, I mean, doing the dishes, I guess could be one thing, but more of it is like being the person who has to be the, on the one hand, the, the ad hoc project manager for everything that comes along and figuring out how it gets done before anybody's even realized that's a problem. But it's also being, as you say, the office mom sometimes, the de facto support network for the unmet emotional needs of people who are not in a position to escalate a discussion of the way things are going in, in such a way that oftentimes they feel gaslit until somebody comes along to them and says, hey, how is this going? It seems like this kind of thing is going on. Do you want to talk about that? So I've seen more of that, even in my programming world, for people who have a role as a, uh, as a people manager, as we call them, like that, that yeah. either is whole or part of their role. There is an expectation that, yes, even the men 
are go- then going to do emotional labor because it's it's part of that job. Like in very in many cases, it is the only is the main part of that job. You this is have a, this it, is apart from apart from HR type jobs. Yeah, you because you are a people manager. So you have a bunch of programmers reporting to you. You're like a Michael uh, and, Lop type, and, and you. Well, I'm not going to say what kind of type that is, but I feel like he's he's at much higher echelons there. But there is there some it, the manly way thing to call this leadership. But part of leadership, especially on a small team level, is you have a bunch of people. You have to keep them motivated. You have to know what motivates each one of them. You have to when yeah. like you just said, if, if there is commands coming down from on high or a particular direction the company is going with it, you know it's going to upset people on your team. You have to reframe that message so they understand it like it's the, it's basically the job of being a manager the job mm-hmm. of being a manager actually does involve a lot of uh, emotional labor because like that's that's the whole job like you're not being asked to to write code you're being asked to manage a bunch of people who write code and managing them like means keeping them happy and employed and essentially so they don't leave and so they don't you know sabotage your company and destroy things and so they don't destroy the productivity of the other people and so they don't make other people leave and it's just you know it, that's that's the job the uh the gender roles angle on it comes in not when women are managers which is rare because we don't even give them those jobs in in tech uh but when like how this job is performed by a man so when when men do this job they're going my experience is they will the best ones will try to be good leaders and you know like do all those things motivate the team uh, reframe things for the team immediate conflicts but the limit of uh, now you're asking too much of me emotional labor wise is, is so low. Like if there's a, a team member who is a problem, there will be an attempt made by an, an average manager to deal with that situation. But very shortly, if, you know, if talking to them, if you, if you, if you can't, if a solution can't be found, it's like, well, that person's got to go. Whereas the, hmm. the traditional, when a woman is put in this role, it's usually the opposite direction where they're managing up. And, the tyrannical person like is allowed to be horrible for years and years because uh, you, the person below is not in a position to make them leave. Like, it, you know, it's like the, the, the men's, I don't know if this makes them good or bad at their job, but like there is a certain amount of emotional labor that they're willing to expend. And after that, it's like, well, that's it. I've hit my limit. Like, and, and, you know, and sometimes the limit is really short that like <laughs> you are a bad fit for the team. I tra- had one guess on what your problem might be, and that didn't help. So you're out of here. So mm-hmm. get traded to another team or get booted out of the company because you're a problem child. Uh, this can also happen, by the way, for women who come into the company are treated incredibly unfairly, complain about it. Now, the woman is a squeaky wheel. Man can't figure out, you know, she's got these complaints, but they're all ridiculous. Women are too emotional. Get her out of here. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, they get it. They get it coming and going. It's 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 really terrible. But but like. That that you know part of and I was I've been a people manager for short periods of time. It is not my forte, but I understand what the job involves, and I can tell when people are good at it and when they are not. Uh, and it is like a hundred percent emotional labor. Like, and that that goes to a lot of stuff that Michael Lop, our, our friend who write, writes books about this, a lot of his books touch it like that. Like, don't touch on this. Like, there are about this. Like, you think is this a book about technology? It's like it's a book about understanding people and what motivates them. I think he's got a book. I think it's. I want to say it's called Managing People. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's got a bunch of uh, he's got a website full of he's this stuff. Really he's got guy. multiple books, right? And, and, he's and got like a new if podcast. you read it, you yeah. you think is it going to be about like tech and programmer nerd? Yeah, kind of, but really, it's it, it's like a hundred percent about understanding people and and how to deal with them. And that's that is that is emotional labor. And like he he presents, a, a, you know, a roadmap for how to do it. 
But a lot of people, I feel like, would read that and just be exhausted. Like, that seems like so much work because they're not used to doing that kind of work. And it's like, oh, forget it. I don't want that job or I want someone else to do that job. Or if I had that job, I wouldn't put up with this. And I just want everything to be smooth. Well, like I didn't become a programmer to like deal with people like me. Yeah, exactly. Even just dealing with teammates, like just, again, expecting the gender role to be I can be ornery and cranky and react to everything around me. And it's someone else's job to keep us from inter- from combusting, from banging against each other, from self-destructing. Like, I will just be an actor here who I do my thing and yell about other people, and you keep us apart. You separate us. You uh, placate me and placate that person. You figure out how to keep me motivated. Like It's, it's a very childlike position mm-hmm. of like, I'm bored. What, I, someone entertain me. I don't like what I'm doing. I liked it before, but now I don't like it. <laughs> Fix me. Yeah, let's do. do I want to do something different. Why are we still doing this? And then someone else is expected to come in. I'm still not happy. Right. Someone else is expected to come in and fix it, which is very a very you know toddler type of thing to do. But adult men are conditioned to act that way as a you know as a sort of chest beating show of force, and someone else is expected to come in and and work around them in the same way that the cranky husband you know cursing at the boiler the mother's upstairs in the christmas story dealing with dinner and the kids and trying to wove a tapestry of obscenity (laughs) trying to maintain a reasonable home environment with with this with this free radical bouncing around right 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 this episode of reconcilable differences is brought to you in part by squarespace you can learn more about squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com slash diffs hey listen you guys know squarespace you know the drill and now it's time make your next move with squarespace squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain award-winning templates and so much more maybe you want to create an online store yeah got that maybe you want to make a portfolio yep squarespace yeah yeah maybe you want to make a blog yeah squarespace it's the answer squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that there's nothing to install no patches to worry about no upgrades are ever needed. You don't got to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace has got you covered. They have award-winning 24 by 7 customer support if you ever need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name and all of their award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I'm a huge fan of Squarespace. I couldn't do what I do without Squarespace. It runs my personal sites. It runs the Roderick on the Line podcast. It does it all. I've been with them forever. You know what? They get my official okie dokie, Squarespace. Check them out. And right now, Squarespace plans start at just $12 per month. You can start a free trial right now with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. When you decide to sign up, use that special offer code diffs. That'll get you 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain, and it will show your support for your buddies at Reconcilable Differences. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash diffs, offer code diffs for 10% off your first purchase. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Uh, this is a little bit of a side thing, but um, I was listening. There's a, a podcast I like uh, called You Are Not So Smart, A Celebration of Self-Delusion. It's this guy whose name I always forget, David McCraney. Uh, talk to people about stuff you uh, you may find interesting, things like biases and things like that. And um uh, I was listening to one today. I didn't finish it yet, but he interviews this uh, Canadian guy 
who is a he's a really his name's Misha Globerman, and he seems like a really interesting guy. He is a facilitator, a negotiator, he teaches negotiation, and he also has this uh, podcast and lecture series called Trampoline Hall. Uh, and long story short, uh, I don't know, listening to this today, I was just sitting around listening to this podcast, and uh, it really it came out of nowhere. Um, you know, sometimes you feel so you know, as they used to say, you're soaking in it. Like there's so much to our culture right now that is so confrontational and everybody takes a side. And I certainly participate in that, but it was really interesting that this guy's, he's real thoughtful about what it means to negotiate. And he starts by sort of talking about how he has this great anecdote about how he got into this and who knows. So this could be, you know, selling Pez on the internet, but, but his anecdote is basically long story short about this um, restaurant in the building that he lived in that was really loud and they wouldn't turn it down. The place wanted to open a patio and the homeowners association went after them. to like, say, haha, you're not going to build a patio. And it became very contentious. And long story short, they had a meeting with like a, like an alderman, like a, like a, you know, council person and uh, the council person said, hey, look, you know, you guys are going to win. They're not going to get their patio. Come in and we'll meet about this. And it was, uh, it was uh, a little bit of Yoda stuff because they came in there and it was the restaurant people and the homeowners or the renters, I guess I should say. And he said, look, you know, let's, let's talk about what it is that each of you really want. Because they were so dug in on he, what does he do? He differentiates between your position versus your like your desire, like what it is you actually want and how easy it is to get so dug in on a position that you forget about what you were trying to accomplish. And I'm sorry, this is kind of long, but, but he basically sat down, the, the, the counseling guy sat down and said to the restaurant people, what is it you really want? And they said, well, we want this patio because we would like, we want to have this kind of upscale dining experience for lunch and dinner, you know, and uh, you know, it'd be nice if we could have it be a bar at night, but that's all we really want. What we really want is to like make this a nicer restaurant and and they said, well, to the, to the people, like to the house people, like, what is it you really want? Well, we want to be comfortable and safe in our home and never not be loud. And the councilman said, well, how about we do this? What, what if we were to say that the restaurant gets to have their patio, they get the license, they can have the patio for lunch and for dinner, and that they agree to turn the, the music way down and basically keep things way more quiet. And initially, both sides really pushed back against it because it was not what their position was they were both going to lose in that instance. And he realized though, by the end that it, it ended up being a very good solution for both. Once they let go of the idea of like, here's what my position is. And instead here's it is, is the, how do we create value in such for both sides in such a way that we aren't thinking about the position instead thinking about the outcome. And I don't know, that was really thought provoking to me listening to that. I, I don't know if he's the smartest guy in the world. I, I, it really made me think about myself about Culture Day, and in this case, because we're preparing to record the podcast I do with John Syracuse, I was also just thinking about how this how this applies in the workplace place, and what a different approach that is to like you know if you're the person in the office who ends up being responsible for emotional labor, like how much of your job is a kind of negotiation? And as this guy says, negotiation can be anything. Like where are we going to go to dinner? What movie are we going to see? Those all end up being a kind of negotiation, whether we realize it or not. And adding value to the outcomes makes it this thing that we can all, you know, participate in with good goodwill. I don't know. I just, I, I think about that, in, that incredible job of having to identify, in this case, when there's a position that maybe people don't even realize that they're taking strongly in the office. And then having this like wizard-like ability to hopefully come in and find a way 
to solve a problem that nobody has even directly realized or addressed is a problem. And like, what an incredible, I've seen it happen. I've been around the kind of managers that see something coming before anybody else realizes it. But it takes an extraordinary amount of uh, maturity, empathy, just the, the kinds of people skills that most of us just do not have in abundance to get to where we can look at what it is that we're actually trying to accomplish here, get past the position stuff. And that's stuff that a lot of bosses are just not that good at. That was long. I'm sorry. I think I've heard that uh, that negotiator thing before. And was that negotiator by any chance hired by either the building and or the restaurant to mediate this negotiation? Because no, no, the, he, was, uh, the, he, was on, the, he was on the, the renting tenant, end. The tenants got screwed. <laughs> it's not maybe not the yeah, best example. I, I guess, I guess, but I, but I don't know. It was thought provoking to me because I realize how many how many things where I just want the other side to lose. You know, I'm sorry. This is a this is a hard pivot. That's but. exactly what the negotiators are there to do to make to to make people to make people come away at first they seem like no one's going to be satisfied but to, to make each of them come away with something where they feel like they've you know th- they each got something out of it right and well, unfortunately they, got, they even got something they didn't expect because in the case of this this council dude at least in this anecdote he was able to redirect the energy in a completely unknown direction where we've gotten away from what it is that we think we want to win to like what are the benefits that we could actually find in this mm-hmm. and I, I think that's a, like I say, that's a certain kind of wizard ability that only some people have, but it gets back to this idea and some, I think of invisible work, which is how do you discover the thing that needs to be done that nobody else even realizes it work, the work that needs to be done. And then how often are you the person who's stuck with actually doing the work that you've identified? That, that, that brings up the idea of soft spells being used for evil. Cause I feel like, it, you know, I don't know if this negotiator was using it for evil or not, but in the end, like if you have the ability to make people see things from a different perspective, understand where they're coming from, get 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 to their their root desires and reframe things for them, which is the the the, uh, the skill and the emotional labor needed to deal with people who have feelings who, who are bursting out in one direction or another. Uh, but in this particular case, um, the, the the negotiation was restaurant gets the patio to make a nicer restaurant, and agreement is you get the patio, but also. Uh, turn down the noise. Well, and and they wrote it up such that if basically if the tenants were not satisfied that they had lived up to their end of the deal, the patio thing was over. And and the the po- prologue or the post mortem was, hey, actually, you know what? It was actually kind of a nice thing, and it it was nice to have there. And they we all got what we wanted, at least in the anecdote. Right, but see the 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 imbalance that the in this negotiation was able to be struck is that on the one hand, uh, the restaurant was allowed to build furnish and use some new area of their thing to to serve people right on the other hand the tenants received a behavior which is the sound emanating from the restaurant in total will be lower (laughs) right we got Uh, like a classic democratic deal so (laughs) we get to go back we get to go back to zero yay so the sound uh can change on a moment-to-moment basis by someone from turning a volume knob but the patio cannot blink in and out of existence so it's kind of like building settlements, right? Who can renege on their deal and how easily? Tenants can come and go and the the noise level can creep up or down, but that patio, once built and populated, does not blink out of existence with the turn of a knob. But the mm-hmm. sound does. A, a loud group of people comes in that patio and the sound goes up and how, do you have some kind of meter? Is there? Does everyone in the restaurant get an electric shock when it goes above a no, level? No, you, you wouldn't like this guy, among other things. He talks about uh, the the limitations of debate. I think you'd hate it. 
the the idea that like when we when we confrontationally address each other in this certain way that we only win by leaving with a stronger feeling about what we thought we believed to begin with and that if you think about that it doesn't make mm-hmm. a ton of sense yeah, so, so the way so the way he could have he could have been using it for evil by realizing that uh it's it's easy to renege on the noise but it's hard to ever get rid of that patty once it's built he could have been using it for good on the other end if he knows or suspects that if they build this patio, the actual noise in the restaurant, even in worst case, will not actually be worse than it was before. It'll probably be about a wash, right? Mm-hmm. And that there actually will be benefit to the people there because they, if they eat at this restaurant, it's nice to eat on the patio. That yeah. could be using it for evil and, and trying to come to this agreement, which is a, way, a tricky way. Because if you had argued with them, look, we built this patio, it's not actually going to be that much louder. Like you're already next to the restaurant. It will be basically the same as far as you're concerned. Right. But I can't convince you of that. So instead, I'm going to make you strike this deal, this fictitious deal where, oh, don't worry, we'll be quiet. Oh, you think the councilman was working uh, for the patio people. And then you don't have to actually make them be quiet. This is like they said you can build the patio and we all know it won't actually be louder. So just tell them you'll agree to keep it quiet. And lo and behold, they build a patio. It isn't any louder. And the tenants feel like they got something and they won a concession when really all this person did was convince the unreasonable tenant people that the future they fear will not actually happen. But you can't convince them that. So that would be an example you're of using radi- your, You're a radical, John Syracuse. So you've been radicalized. That would be using your, your, your emotional labor skills for good. Using mm-hmm. it for evil would be uh, doing it and it is going to be louder. And there's nothing they can do about it once the damn thing is built. Uh, and I don't know which, which, a lawsuit. Get out while you can. Yeah, and I don't know which which is which. And plus, there's tenant turnover, and eventually, like, there are no more monkeys left that know about the fire. All right, I, I reject the that. podcast. I'm sorry, I brought it up. Yeah. Um. <laughs> no, no, anyway, but I, but I think I think that is a good example of of like how how skill in that area can be valuable, right? Like, well, and like, yeah, to 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 your point, I mean, how often somebody just says some stuff to like keep somebody happy for a while without doing anything fundamental to improve the situation. Or like in my case of like, you know, the, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too broad and stereotypical, but I do think there is a kind of blustering boss who just expects, expects people to, uh, another thing this guy said in passing was talking about how interesting it is that like how much negotiation has to happen when you're a boss, basically that you like, I think that's what made me think of it was your, your point that like any manager's job in some ways is a constant renegotiation with people to make sure that everybody's getting, you know, sort of what they want to accomplish the big goal. Um, but I guess another way of using that for evil though, would be like shining people on or like all the times think about how many times somebody has gone in and asked for a raise in the classic, like Fred Flintstone example of like, you know, you want a raise and they say, well, you know, something, something reason, reason quarter four, let's, let's, let's talk about it. You know, when Sid's back from vacation or whatever it is. And of course it never actually happens. That person never took it seriously. That if you're a calm, confident, persuasive person, you could use that to just basically lie to people. Yeah, we're, we're still picturing it from the perspective of where the the manager sees it as their role to keep the employees happy. But that is definitely a privileged position that doesn't exist in most jobs. And it's actually the opposite, where the management's job is to uh, exploit the workers to the, the, the maximum extent possible while also make them not feel like they're being exploited. And there's a whole bunch of emotionally manipulative tools to do that. It was like, oh, we're all a family here and we do all these activities together. And so you should come in on the weekends uh, because like we're in this together and it's a team effort. And even though all the benefit will accrue to me because I have all the stock and you have nothing, please come in on Saturday anyway. Mm-hmm. Like the best, if you're really good at that, you know, like the game industry, speaking of video games, as we were earlier, is excellent at that because people want to work in the games industry and very often it's an exploitive environment where there there are the the emotional connection that the workers feel to the project and the company far outweighs 
the actual emotional connection the company feels to the employees or, or sure. how they're treated. Like they're just this is this is a way to exploit them by by essentially like, oh, we're making you feel happy and like and you're you're all you know, this is this is a group effort and we're all gonna be proud of this thing we're making. And so work like a dog a hundred hours a week for six months. And when we make all the money, your salary won't go up or anything. In fact, you'll probably be laid off. But won't you be happy to have worked on this project? And, and basically, anytime a company tries to tell you that we're all family here, uh, yeah. when that is never the case, almost mm-hmm. like, even in a company where all the employees have equity, like family is a very different type of relationship. And the the employer employee relationship is incredibly different. And yet people who are good at doing I don't know if you want to call that emotional labor. It's more like emotionally manipulative people who are good at that type of interaction can essentially fool people into giving more of themselves than they're ever going to get back from the entity they're giving it to. It's not entirely different from the way our current president thinks about loyalty, which he it's, he's constantly talking about, you know, needing people to be loyal, implying that he is being loyal to them when that loyalty is, as they say, a one way street. And I think a lot of people, when they say we're a family, it is a, not true. It's not a family in any way, but B, invoking the family, maybe in this, what was his name, uh, Lakoff kind of way, invoking family is a way to saying that you should trust and fear me because I'm your dad now. Like, you need to be loyal to me because I'm the one that decides your fate here. But of course, they're implying that it means it's this lovey-dovey supportive environment, which it absolutely is not. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You have a final point here that I think is worth talking about. How how we uh, uh, identify and acknowledge when when there's an imbalance. Well, can, can, one... I, can, I, can, I, can I put a flag here? Do, do, I've been ranting a lot and tr- and avoiding talking about why I have a beef with this for my own reasons. I'm I'm being real woke and virtue signaling about my feeling about all these poor ladies. Um, do you accept that? Uh, how much of this do you accept? Do you think emotional labor is a thing and it's What's your take on it? Oh, I 100% accept it. And it is the vast majority of it is expected to be done by women and is done by women. That yeah. doesn't mean there aren't situations where we all do emotional labor. To give an example, uh, parenting is like 99% emotional labor. And if you participate in parenting in any way whatsoever, you will be asked to do way more emotional labor than you probably ever had to do, especially if you had some substantial amount of time as an adult where you weren't responsible for children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in this modern world, uh, men are actually experimented, expected to participate in parenting. I do indeed participate in parenting. And therefore, I do a lot of emotional labor as it relates to children. And I think we all do. I think that the role of the dad who doesn't do any emotional related labor related to children is basically gone or should be gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it, we, again, we see it in the, the sort of 50 stereotype where anytime the kids have any sort of need, whether that's the need for comforting or uh, support or they're crying or they're angry, the mother deals with them and the father just gets to do fun thing with them occasionally. But the second they have any sort of problem off they go, right? Like if that ever really existed, uh, it is certainly out of favor and hopefully doesn't exist anywhere. Well, and, and that, that wait till your father gets home fear chip, um, is, is kind of a last resort because mom's at wit's end with having to deal with all of these things. And like the nuclear option is like, don't make me, don't make me, harness your father's anger in a way that i usually the only thing he can do is like you are you you are asking something of me that i'm not going to give get in line or face physical violence (laughs) pray i don't alter it further yeah that's the only tool in the toolbox is like there is some kind of what what do you want (laughs) just listen to my words and obey them as an automaton and if you don't i will strike you yeah right right 
Yeah, so the last one, um, I don't know. That's eh, kind of cheesy, but I mean, how, uh, and, and you know, uh, one little, little quick thing is I, I, I sometimes, I think some of this is my, I'm going to confess up here. I think some of this is my personality. For example, I used to think, oh, the lady who's always yelling at us to do the dishes at work, she's just uptight. This is the kind of thing we'd say in the early 90s. She's just uptight or she's a neat freak. And all of her constant OCD demands that we clean all of our dishes uh, is really out of touch with the kind of important work that I'm doing here. I don't think that was an uncommon thing for people to think but not say. I don't think I was alone in that. That doesn't make it good. But at that time, I would look at that in the same way that I would look at people who had to leave to pick their kids up from school. And I'd roll my eyes and be like, you're not working 80 hours a week. Look at me. I'm Elon Musk. Um, a lot of that's changed in the intervening 20 plus years, but, uh, I have to be honest. I sometimes feel when I say maybe instead of emotional labor, I want to just talk in some ways also just about what I would call invisible work, which is how is it that some people, and you can tell me if I'm way off base here, but I feel like, how is it that some people, usually women end up getting saddled with the invisible work, the identifying of stuff that needs to be done. And often as not being the one who then has to do that work do stuff, maintain the relationships with other people, explain uh, why things are the way they are. Like, I guess I, I want to fess up to that being a frustration of mine historically and sometimes currently. It's like being the person who like, as soon as anybody has like a big idea, well, that just creates a ton of work for me in some situations. And I, I, I sometimes don't know how to address it. And I imagine it frustrates other people too. What do you do when you're the de facto invisible work manager? There are still the uh, the generals that we just talked about still uh, come at us from all directions, despite the fact that we have shifted from them. So people are put in a position where there are differing expectations on them. And that 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 becomes relevant because what you're talking about is like some some amount of work is about to be produced. Right. And in, in many respects, it is a game of chicken to see who's going to do that work because. Mm-hmm. Everyone understands that someone <laughs> like, like has Bart to do and Lisa it. with the trash falling over. Yeah, like everyone you know understands talking about that like, ha- like, the, 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 whoever, like whoever put on the piece of trash what's that the made last, it fall. What's the last yeah, exactly. Piece. <laughs> right, but this is like so. Some work has been generated, needs to be done, and everyone has some kind of baseline level of anxiety about it not being done. But depending on your personality type or whatever, but also on how you've been raised your entire life and every message that's been sent to you from every corner of society you have differing levels of anxiety about the fact that no one's planning the birthday party or no one has decided where we're going right. to eat or no one let, has let figured out how anxiety that you yeah. should be stepping in to take care of it. Or, yeah, or Timmy's birthday is coming up mm-hmm. and we should plan something for it. And the game of chicken is, I care about this less than you, so I'm just going to do nothing. And then I know that you'll pick up the slack because yeah. your anxiety will eventually went out and you'll be angry and frustrated, but the bottom line is you'll do it because it needs to get done and you're more upset about it not being done than I am. And that person may even say, I would have done it eventually. <laughs> it's like that, that Ben Fold song, the battle, what is it called? The battle of who could care less. <laughs> yeah. I, I would have done it eventually, but you care more about this or yeah. you're better at it is the big, the, it's a bigger, the big it's a bigger deal money. to you. Yeah. You're, you're better at, at loading the dishwasher. You're, you're better at cooking dinner. It's not mm-hmm. that I don't want to do it. I would do it eventually if it needed to be done, but you know, like, and it's true of everything. So work gets generated and it is actually a game of like laziness chicken. And the reason it, it's gendered is because uh, how much of your identity is wrapped up in the idea of you're the type of person who wouldn't let your child go by with their birthday uncelebrated 
for a woman to do that is that every part of society is telling you you are a bad person. For a man mm-hmm. to do that, it's like, well, you're not a great dad, but we understand because, you know, you're a man. You're busy. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And same thing for any other type of scenario, project at work or whatever. Like if there has to be a presentation at the project at work, it's the game of chicken as who wants to get there. Oh, you're, you're good at giving presentations. You you get up there and you do that. Or like if some person is angry, I'm not going to talk to him. He's yelling and screaming in there and someone's got to go in to, you know, calm the nerves or whatever. So that, that sort or like, of like even like Louise keeps sulking in the copy room. Can you go find out why? Right. Like, you, and the, the game of chicken is I'm just going to pretend it's not happening, ignore it, and someone else will have to deal with it eventually. And in, in a work type environment, very often it is someone's job, like the people manager. It's their job to manage the people. It's maybe it's not your job to manage your peers that much. Right. Uh, but in a, in a less hierarchical relationship, like, like a family, which, you know, despite the parent child relationship, there's, there's not as strict a, a hierarchy there or any side of kind of group activity, even just like, we're all going to go out somewhere. Someone figure out where we're going to go. Someone make the reservation. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone figure out how we're going to get there. I'm just going to be the person who barks orders because I'm the quote unquote leader. But so I'm I'm delegating to the rest, the rest of the group to, to figure out how to do that. If it always falls on you to do that because you're the one who's the most concerned about it, we don't know where we're going or how we're going to get there. All right. Like it's it, I guess the question of identifying when this happened. If you if you keep ending up the person who's doing that, like identifying it as i mean i suppose you could complain about it you mm-hmm. could uh, and i see this happen a lot not put yourself in that situation so that's why people quit jobs often if there is an angry person on a team even if it's, you're not your it's not your job to be the people manager and you're not the one causing the problem you will leave because you just don't like being in an environment where that person is allowed to bounce around because you don't want to deal with it and it's not your job to deal with it but you don't want to be in a team where that person exists so they chase away everybody else and yeah. the, the, the the bad people manager can't understand why everyone keeps leaving except for this one person this must be their best employee and really that's the reason everybody keeps leaving they're they're they're, they're the source of the farts that makes everybody leave the room yeah and identifying when it's happening and like it's difficult because identifying it to yourself, like, or telling someone about it again, getting back to the, the woman who comes in as being sexually harassed, like she can identify that that's happening, but like, what does she do with that information? If right. she tells her boss or the person she's supposed to tell, well, especially and if they, the boss says we don't have a sexual harassment problem. Yeah. yeah or they, they end up, she's looks like the, the squeaky wheel, like correctly identifying when it's happening gives you almost nothing like you have to, like that you have to figure out what what do i do next because i think everybody almost everybody involved especially the person who's doing the emotional label can identify when it's happening mm-hmm. but then what do you do with that information you can't even voice that very often right, if you voice right. that like the lady yelling about the dishwasher stuff she's identified what's happening that she's the only one who deals with the dishes and once she voices it does that solve the problem or let people oh i didn't realize it was happening i'll change my behavior now no not at all in fact it, it, it adds a new a new burden because now it's, she's the yeah. scold. It's and it's a, it's almost like uh, catch twenty two is the wrong term, but I mean, it's part of the um, it's part of the power problem that makes this a problem inside the problem. Which is okay. Well, no, maybe the boss doesn't realize this. But we got a power problem here, which is that that power problem cannot be discussed with the person who's the source of the problem. Like, you can't go to the big angry boss. I mean, imagine Ralphie's mom going to Ralphie's dad and being like, you know, I could use a little more help from you. Maybe he's less time trying to win a leg and a little bit more time trying to get, you know, uh, Randy into his snowsuit. Like, he's going to flip. He's going to flip. And and if I know that kind of bully, he's also going to feel super mad and entitled that like you have called that into question. You don't realize how busy that person is and all that he's got to do. This is just the classic from since I got a job in the 90s is this like, how dare you? 
bring this up kind of thing. I rely on you to take care of this, right? To take care of the stuff. I think it's difficult to address. It's hard enough to identify, but like, how do you take invisible work, whatever, whether it's emotional or otherwise, organizational, just any of the like infrastructural stuff that people don't even realize what keeps the wheels on in a team, a group and relationship an organization. If they don't even realize that that's being done and you bring that up to them, it's usually not a very easy sell. That's the power. That's the power problem. Is you're not, you're not, you're not in a position to say, I end up doing a lot of invisible work around here. And like, well, yeah, it sure is invisible. I don't see you doing it. Like, what are you talking about? My, my job is nine to five. Your job is 24 hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you don't have right. a job, but it translates to the, your job is 24 hours a day because the, the nine to five time, like is when the working happens, then all the rest of the time, someone else does all the stuff that maintains my life. But when that nine to five is going on, someone else is still doing things. So it doesn't, you know. And there's still, there's just that, that phrase. And you know, there's a reason. There's so many reasons this grinds my gears, but it's that word busy. I feel like that is, that is such a, an excuse that people use for so much BS in their own life that they have generated and that they have a very happily generated for other people as it always comes down to being busy is that th- that has become such a catch-all escape key for responsibility in any kind of behavior. Because once you tell people you're busy, that's supposed to be a get out of jail free card for however you're behaving. Do you find that to be true? Is that just me? I mean, well, there's uh, there's varying levels of tolerance that like in, in the in work environments, I feel like things are more regimented. I've, I've been lucky enough to work in mostly good companies with good people. These pathologies do not exercise themselves mm-hmm. uh, very much. But like getting by on that requires, to your earlier point, a power differential beforehand because you can't get away with that if you're an employee and you're constantly asked to do if your boss does it it's a reason if the receptionist does it it's an excuse right like, i mean eventually like you do have some work that's required of you can just say oh i couldn't do that i was busy but in, in interpersonal relationships i don't want to make this an east coast west coast thing but there is a different tolerance for like punk- we talked about punctuality before yeah, 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 like, yeah. doing what you say you're going to do in interpersonal friend relationships some baseline expectation in every friend relationship that that if you say you're going to be a place, you be a place you're going to be somewhere. If you say you're going to do a thing, you're going to do a thing. If uh-huh. you borrow my whatever thing, that you will actually return it. And there is a breaking point where you realize, okay, well, uh, this relationship is not enough of a two way street, so it's got to end. And the you know, the getting back to the punctuality thing, the East Coast stereotype is. If, if we if we arrange to go to the movies three weekends in a row and every time I show up and you never show up and never text me and never call and I have no idea where you are and the next Monday you say, oh, I forgot about that or I was busy. We're not going to yeah. go to the movies anymore. Fla- flaking is a much more acceptable West Coast excuse. Right. Sorry, and, man, but, it's, but, it's, but it's exactly the same thing of like there is an excuse. Th- there is some uh, reason offered, but it's it's clear that, uh, again, the emotional uh, anxiety you feel of waiting, where is this person or, or you know. I made I made some kind of arrangement. Are they actually going to show up? Uh, do, is that person going to do the thing they said they were going to do? Are they ever going to give back my weed whacker? Should I bring it up? Am I the scold if I bring it up? All the worry about that type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there is again in a, in a relationship like that where one person is doing all all the thinking and worrying and work involved in this and arranging where they're going to go and and finding a time that's suitable for both people, and the other person is just there giving yes no answers yeah uh, you know and shouting out directives 
and uh, and edicts, and then maybe not even showing up. Oh, at all. maybe maybe wondering why you're so lost in the weeds about this thing that's so easy to just do. Like, why are we talking? Why are we still talking about this? Right, and and but I feel like there is uh, for for those type of personal relationships, it's a choice, and a, for both people to continue to engage in that, and for just mm-hmm. a friend type thing, it's much easier, much less fraught to just say, okay, well, you know, I'm just not going to hang out with that person anymore because they don't know how to be a friend. If you're in a marriage or a job, it is much harder to, you know, extricate yourself from that situation in any kind of graceful or successful way. Especially if you have a strongly held position about, like, how well you're handling it, for sure. Yeah, and there's the sunk cost fallacy and the expectation of not getting divorced and you have to keep this job for your money and your health care, and it's so much more fraught. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I say don't go to business with your friends or your family. Because then you can't, you combine the best of both worlds there where you you are, could find yourself in one of those work situations that we described but can't extract yourself from it because your coworker or boss uh is your family or friend. And yeah. ex- ex- getting yourself out of one is <laughs> you know, it's sort of saying that you want to get out of the other one too. Yeah, and just and just to, to return to kind of where this started, in some ways, like I, I do also have to accept that maybe I'm not as good at this stuff as I think I am. I think I'm good at identifying what needs to be done and doing it. But I, I mean, for example, nine days ago, uh, I accidentally flushed half a, a paper towel down the toilet here at work, and I'm still worried about it. Like, I'll think about stuff like that. Like, it's probably fine, but I, but I definitely will still think about that. And when somebody suggests, you know, this is the classic, if you want to go back to the inbox zero stuff, like one of my frustrations leading up to that was this whole sense that the email that you get from somebody that's 10 words long could represent six months of work for you because that person doesn't know what work you do. And are you, is it okay for you to go back to that person and say, well, let me just break this down for you. What you're asking for here, it seems like this, but you're really also, you're asking for this, right? And a lot of times it's not okay to do that. I think it's a, it's a, an understood not okay. Just like it's an understood not okay to say like, I need time off to go pick up the birthday candles for Sally's cake. You know, I think that's the, the, the thing that, that I think is the vexing part is there are those of us out there who are fretful about things like this. I think you're pretty fretful in your own way. Um, but like, I, I am fretful about that stuff. And if somebody, if I find invisible work, um, it's hard for me not to think about it. It's hard for me not to think about how it gets done. And ultimately, to my own discredit, it's frustrating to me like how often I feel like I allow myself to become the default work sink in a situation where I'll just take care of it and I won't mention it. I won't make and just to be super clear, I'm not talking about my wife. Just need to be super clear. This entire thing is not <laughs> she about to I, the show. It's fine. Jim, please drop in a statement earlier about how nothing I'm saying here is about my wife. Um, honestly. Um I don't know. No, it's, it's, it's me beating myself up, but it's also being frustrated at seeing, being able to see from a remove sometimes somebody who's not in a position of power, maybe somebody you love and respect who is ending up being the identifier, gatherer, and implementer of invisible work and not being sure what to do about it. Well, in the situation you described, like your fretfulness about it, that's why you keep losing the game of chicken. Like, because there is a game of chicken and you immediately lose. You immediately concede because you're so anxious and about I do, it. I and I do so care more and I worry more. Uh, yeah. And, and you then, while well, you end up doing it, and at a certain point, you start proactively doing it because it's like, I don't even want to play this game of chicken because the game of chicken itself is anxiety ridden. And then on top of that, 
uh, knowing you, are probably resentful about it. Because although you are have anxiety about it, you can identify it and then be resentful about the fact that you always find yourself doing this because you have the... I feel, resent, I feel resentful. I have, have historically felt resentful about the fact that, that it's not being acknowledged and that it is... It, I'm, I'm, I'm resentful of the anxiety and I am resentful of the work. Like, you don't understand enough about what I do to know why this is a thing that needs more careful attention than it's getting. And I, I'm just, again, to be super clear, I'm not putting myself on the same level as Peggy Olson here. I'm not talking about a, a madman style. I'm not doing anything like that level of emotional work. And it, and it just makes more because imagine you have a situation like that where there's some team where someone is, you know, doing a team project and some person ends up doing all this extra work just because they're the most worried about it. And, you know, it's a bunch of peers, like they're not even in charge of this, but they end up doing everything and they become resentful about it. And that resentment starts, they start snapping back at the people, uh, the other members of the team. Now yeah. you have a second problem that requires some emotional labor to deal with the team dynamics and to suss out why is this person being obnoxious and being that mean to everybody like on the team. That sounds like Survivor in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, like, yeah, the goal is it, not to It definitely to happens. Harmony, all he does but, is sit around on the mat all day and like eating coconuts. He never gets right, up there and, and fishes. And, and maybe like as a viewer of the show, you may say, well, he's mad because he's always got to do all the work. But also he's he's causing a problem that now needs to be addressed by a second person who's worried about the dynamic. Like it just it just makes more emotional labor for someone else to deal with this dysfunctional unit where people are angry at each other. And to figure out why they're angry may get you down to the second level of dealing with it. And it's just, you know, it goes on and on. It doesn't it doesn't get better. Eating that doesn't make it better. Like. Try, even just trying to eat that with a smile, it will eventually affect you. Even if you're not like instantly resentful of everything, it will it, it will bubble back up in your performance in whatever it is that you're doing in and the group activity. And finally, I'll become Milton. <laughs> they just moved my stapler one too many times, and now I'm going to set the building on fire. Yeah, he told them he was going to do it. They just didn't listen. Mm -hmm. 